Well, good morning. Let's go ahead and open up our Bibles to Exodus chapter 24. We'll be covering the first 11 verses of the chapter uh, this morning. But I've always been fascinated by the things uh, that are true um, about humanity across history, regardless of time period. Um, And there are a few things more simple and yet powerful as people eating together. Hang with me. Um, That so much is different about the world today as it was 100 years ago and 500 years ago and 5,000 years ago. And yet one thing that remains is how the act of eating together says something. That it still means fellowship, whether it was now or 5,000 years ago. Eating, right? This normal, everyday event that happens multiple times a day. And yet, it's a very fascinating and loaded and can be even emotional topic. Um, There's no shortage of studies, both Christian and secular, that display how the health of families can be gauged by how often and what happens when they eat together. I would say just in the last three months of quarantine, just trying to reach out and connect with as many people as I can, as often as I can, um, I have heard from multiple men and women Um, when just, again, checking in to see how they're doing, uh, that their feedback is something along the lines of this, that, uh, you you know, there's a lot of challenges here, um, trying to work from home and some challenges with the business and um, and, and on the work side of things. Um, But they'll say, "You, you know what, Pastor? I've never eaten together this much with my family, and it's great. And because we know what the normal life and flow around here was pre-quarantine, right? Between work and commuting and uh, maybe kids' practices or other kinds of commitments. Um, One thing that became, I think, more and more rare was family meals. Not just dinner, but now with breakfast and lunch, these kind of multiple opportunities to share a meal together. And it's been a source of joy for many. And yet I also know that the opposite is true. That could be a very source of pain for many. Families that don't eat together for whatever reason or eat in silence and and it just kind of wells up a lot of emotion. I think about, especially again across these three months, people who live on their own who have also said to me, you know what's just hard is day after day after day I'm eating alone. You go back 60 years to the height of the civil rights movement. And throughout the country, there was mandated segregation of restaurants and schools that ensured that blacks and whites would not eat together. And while the racist laws to that end have been removed, we are very well aware of the separation of fellowship between races in this country that is still evident today and we're seeing all kinds of manifestations of what happens when people do not eat together. The direct correlation between a limited understanding and ignorance that people have and the correlation to um, the the fact that how rare it is for uh, men and women to eat together who look different from one another. You look across global history, uh, both now and again across history, how often that you hear about and read about 
world leader summits or uh, meetings between nations making treaties or trade agreements or peace gatherings after war, how there always seems to be a meal shared. In fact, a lot of times when talks break down, it's not until they ate together that things, talks uh, began to pick up again, happened over and over again. Because eating together does something. It says something. Still more, any kind of ceremonies we think about today um, often end in a meal. Weddings, the, the celebration of two people coming together in marriage, it ends with a meal. And on the other side, funerals, the grieving of losing a loved one often ends with a shared meal. Eating together is innately powerful. It's almost like we've been designed with it. It's because we have. And our passage this morning finishes with a meal. The final words of our passage are, and they beheld God and ate and drank. Hope you're hungry this morning. And as I said um, last week, to kind of catch us up where we are in Exodus, is that we are in this section of chapters that by and large gets overlooked by the church today. Uh, But as we, I think, have found and will continue to find, uh, these passages do much to form and shape the people of God in the church today, and they are stunningly relevant, and chapter 24 is no different. Um, As a way of reminder, uh, again, just setting the scene here where we are in Exodus, if you're just joining us for the first time, um, the, the nation of Israel has been freed from slavery in Egypt, over 400 years of slavery by God's mighty hand. And then by his grace, he set them free. And then Then, just as he does now, uh, once God saves his people, he then guides them on how to live. He calls them to obedience as a result of being saved. And he does this through a covenant. A covenantal agreement that regulates the covenantal love of God. In chapter 20, he provided the ten words, what we often refer to as the ten commandments, beginning with, you shall have no other gods, That a true life of freedom is found in commitment to the one true God who made you, who loves you, who is not distant and removed, but who is near and personal. And in chapters 21 to 23, he guided his people on how to live amongst one another. What, What does a love for neighbor actually look like? These were rules that flowed from this relationship that orients his people towards protecting the oppressed and marginalized among them. And now in chapter 24, it is time to confirm and seal the covenant. Covenants between nations and people groups were common in the ancient world. The sealing of the covenant was always done as a ceremony. And so, okay, why why does this matter then for us? If this was Israel and we're the church, why does this matter for us? Here's why. What you might not know about Exodus 24 is that it is the first full worship service in the Bible for the people of God. And it sets the pattern for how the church today is to worship God in the midst of our corporate gatherings. That's where we're going. I'm going to read chapters 24, 1 through 11, and then we'll unpack what I just said. Then he said to Moses, come up to the Lord, you and Aaron and Nadab and Abihu and the 70 of the elders of Israel, And worship from afar. Moses alone shall come near to the Lord, but the others shall not come near, and the people shall not come up with him. 
Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the rules. And all the people answered with one voice and said, All the words that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. He rose early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain and twelve pillars according to the twelve tribes of Israel. And he sent young men of the people of Israel who offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen to the Lord. And Moses took half of the blood and put it in basins, and half of the blood he threw against the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people. And they said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do and we will be obedient. And Moses took the blood and threw it on the people and said, behold, the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. Then Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu and 70 of the elders of Israel went up and they saw the God of Israel. There was under his feet, as it were, a pavement of sapphire stone, like the very heaven for clearness. And he did not lay his hand on the chief men of the people of Israel. They beheld God and ate and drank. I suspect that most Christians, if you were to be asked today this question, um, hey, is the weekly corporate worship gathering of the church, is that important? Most Christians Certainly, I hope the vast majority of those at Grace would say, yes, it is important. It is why we're itching so badly to be able to meet again in person, right? I've I've, I've been really encouraged by how much I've heard this from uh, the people of Grace, um, how, how the online service has been great, and it's a great alternative while we need it. But it's a poor replacement for the people of God gathered in person. So yes, it's important, but what if I were to ask you a follow-up question and just say this, what is it about the corporate gathering that makes it important? What's the purpose of our worship service? What's it meant for? What would you, what would you say? As a church body, we meet for every, every Sunday morning for approximately 75 minutes. What, what are we supposed to be doing there? You might say, well, we're, we're there to be entertained. To, to come on watch the show that the church is putting on that's, that's impressive and well-rehearsed and makes it worth your while to come and show up and watch. I hope that's not what you would say. Now, now, now we certainly don't want to aim to be boring or stale, but if we're just trying to impress, if we're performing up here, to kind of show you and maybe non-believers that, hey man, we're cool, and since we're cool, Jesus is cool, or we just want to keep your attention. That's more about us than it is about God. That's a consumer-driven church. Make it fun. Keep people entertained. It's not what we're doing. Okay, you might say then that we're gathering really just for fellowship with one another, to see one another, to help one another persevere. And where this gathering each week is like a spiritual gas station. You, you, you go in, you get filled up with Jesus and with other people, and then it just starts your week off on the right foot. You just feel good when you come. Maybe closer than being entertained, but still not there. Certainly we need fellowship. Certainly God uses us to spur one another on. And we do hope that the worship service is inspiring in that it stirs your affections for Christ. But our inspiration is not the primary purpose of our gathering. Further, you might say, well, worship is what we do to show our gratitude to God. 
all He's done for us. Now we do this for Him. He saved us, so the least we can do is show up on a Sunday morning and worship Him weekly. This, this is giving God due respect and response to what He has done for us. I understand that mentality, but still, no. Certainly we are grateful, and worship is a fitting response to all God has done. But this is not us paying God back in these weekly installments of worship. All right, so what is it? What are we doing each week when we gather for worship? We are having a covenant renewal as modeled in Exodus 24. It's not just God giving to us, and it's not just us giving to God. It's a renewal of the covenant between God and His people. It's a ceremony that awakens faith, that sustains faith, that strengthens faith in His people. It's, it's, it's both a means of grace God gives to us, and it's a response to that grace from us to God. And this happens when we gather as a corporate body. And while the corporate gathering is not the only aspect of the Christian life, and certainly not the only aspect of the life of a church, it is the most important. Because God cares how we worship. And God sets the pattern for worship, not us. We don't brainstorm how to worship. God sets the, the pattern for us. And the pattern we're going to walk through this morning, it's first the call to worship, second the centrality of the word, third a confessional response, and then fourth finishing with a sacramental meal. So let's take those one at a time. Number one, a call to worship. What we find in, uh, in these kind of chapters in the middle of Exodus is Moses is just consistently going up and down the mountain up and down Mount Sinai to meet with God and then to meet with his people, right? This is a picture of a mediator, one going back and forth between a holy God and an unholy people. And so God summons Moses to the top of the mountain, but this time he says, bring others with you so that they can worship from afar. So your brother Aaron and his two sons and the 70 elders of Israel, bring them with you. It's the first time this number 70 is associated with the group of elders. These are likely the men that Moses appointed back in Exodus chapter 18 when his father-in-law called them out for not raising up other leaders to help him lead, carry the load. So God calls them to himself and yet says, hey, while everyone's going to come towards me, only Moses can draw near to the Lord. So we can picture this in our minds. God is calling his people to himself. He's calling them to worship, represented by the elders, because he seeks to be in relationship with his people. And, 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 and he wants to be close to his people, but he's also a holy God. And they are to respect and honor his holiness. They can't handle his holiness. To, to be holy is to be set apart. And so can you kind of feel the tension in this? This is an invitation, a call to worship, but it's an invitation to approach the holiness of God. And it requires a mediator, a go-between in Moses. God's people cannot accept the call to worship 
without a mediator. Which is why Jesus is considered the better and greater Moses. Right? That Moses was just a shadow of what was to come in Jesus because Jesus is the eternal mediator between God and His people. That's what Paul says in 1 Timothy 2, verse 5. For there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus. So we understand this even more fully than everybody in the nation of Israel did at this point in the Old Testament. That God beckons His people to worship And He does so because in Christ, we can do so freely. We can draw near. God is no less holy today than He was in Exodus 24. He's not a different God. He's just more fully manifested and realized in Christ. And we can come before Him, but He sets the terms. He sets the terms. And that Christ accomplished the ability for us to approach God in worship. So so the corporate gathering in the church is God's people meeting with God in Christ. And so when you assemble to worship under the authority of pastors and elders, you are accepting God's call to worship and come before Him. The call to worship, it's God's drawing you and, and, and you prioritizing the gathering in return because God is inviting you into His presence. It's why we begin our gathering with singing, singing songs of praise, singing songs of adoration, because it's a call to worship and an acceptance of that call to dwell on Him and who He is, to see Him, to know Him. And it's why Sunday morning for the church is a joyful invitation, not a guilty obligation. I wonder... Do you approach the weekly gathering in this way? If you can be honest, when, when you get to Friday and you get through the week and you kind of look at the weekend and you think about your weekend, how do you think about Sunday morning? Is it an obligation driven by guilt? You know, I'm going to need to go, but it's kind of right in the middle of the weekend. kind of ruins the flow of what I got planned, but I got to be there. I got to be there to make God happy. I gotta be there to make my parents happy. I gotta be there to make my spouse happy. And we do it to gain acceptance, whether from God or someone else. Brothers and sisters, let me encourage you. That is a miserable way to approach the gathering. And you are robbing yourself of this call to worship. That God is inviting you into his presence along with his people. And you come, not in order so that God will accept you when you die, but you, become because, you come because you have already been accepted by God. So the action of coming might be the same, but the inner motivation, it makes all the difference. Think of the most famous person you can think of in the world. Like, who is your absolute favorite celebrity, even if you wouldn't use that word celebrity? If you got an invitation from this person on Saturday night, to come into their presence on Sunday morning, what would you do to make sure you're there? Now, how much more meaningful is the God of the universe, the one who dwarfs that celebrity in your mind in every single way that he invites you to worship him along with the church in Christ's name? 
let's remember that Sunday morning worship is a Saturday night decision. That's number one, a call to worship. Second, the centrality of the word. Notice how central the reading and proclamation of the written word was in the midst of this ceremony of covenant renewal. Verse 3, Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the rules. So what's he referring to there? Well, at the beginning of chapter 20, it starts like this. Now these are the words God spoke to Israel. So the ten words. And then at the beginning of chapter 21, now these are the rules that you should set before them. Chapters 21 to 23. And so these are the terms of the covenant. The words and the rules. Notice Moses even makes a distinction there between the ten words and everything else that came to follow. But they were all part of the covenant between God and his people. And if you were following there when we're reading, it it looks a little strange because first the words are spoken and explained, and then verse 4, and then Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord, and it was called the book of the covenant. And down in verse 7, he then reads these same words again. So verse 3, the words spoken. Verse 7, the same words written and read in the hearing of the people. And when God's people gather, This sets the pattern that God's written word is the central element of the gathering. God's people have always been a people of the book. That that God graciously reveals himself in many ways, but the written word is given for the purpose of ensuring that God's words are never forgotten from generation to generation. And this is why covenants in the ancient world and and kind of contracts today are always in writing. Any professional agreement that you are currently in, you enter, it's somewhere it's written in writing. So neither side could claim changes at a later date. One cannot worship God where God's word is not present. We worship God, and this God has revealed himself in a book. And this book, the Bible, God's word, must be read and explained, not as ritual, but as information that God uses for transformation. It's not just for people to come to faith, but for people to remain in the faith. This book is the source of life, and you will find the pattern all throughout the Old Testament that Israel failed when they would fail, and they will fail much, but the correlation was when they would fail because they've neglected to read and live by the book. Two quick examples. You don't have to turn there. But 2 Kings 22, King Josiah, he takes the throne of Judah at eight years old, by the way. It's not a mistake. Eight years old. And Judah, at this point, is far from God. They are in constant rebellion. And in the 18th year of his reign, he appoints some men and women to go repair the temple. And the high priest tells Josiah's secretary, um, um, uh, Shapin, hey, Shapin, hey, we were kind of cleaning things up, and, and we, we found this book, and it's kind of dusty, it's forgotten, we don't really know what it is, it was kind of tucked away somewhere, forgotten for generations. 
And so Josiah's secretary takes it back to him and he reads it before Josiah. And it was the book of the law. And Josiah tears his clothes because he knows in hearing that they have broken the covenant with their Lord. And so then he turns and reads it to the people and he leads the people of God into reform. And it was the first time this generation had ever heard it. But as the story goes, Josiah will die after making these reforms. New leaders will come into power and the book gets neglected once again. And it's not until they return from a 70-year exile generations later to return back to the land and rebuild the walls of Jerusalem that we get to Nehemiah chapter 8. And in Nehemiah chapter 8, we read this. And all the people gathered as one man into the square before the water gate. And they told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses that the Lord had commanded Israel. So Israel the priest brought the law before the assembly, both men and women and all who could understand what they heard on the first day of the seventh month. He read from it facing the square before the water gate from early morning until midday in the presence of the men and women and those who could understand. And the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. And Ezra the scribe stood on a wooden platform that they had made for the purpose. Down to verse 6. And Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people answered, Amen, Amen, lifting up their hands. And they bowed their heads and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. Verse 8, they read from the book, from the law of God, clearly. And they gave the sense so that the people understood the reading. One cannot worship where God's word is not present. Which is why the preaching of God's word, which is to say the reading and the explaining and the applying of God's word to God's people will always be the central aspect of the gathering. And a step further, it's why even when there's current events that are very serious and need to be addressed like there is right now in our world with the racial injustice and racism and systems that are undergirding all of that, that even when there's hot topic, current events, that they never dictate the corporate gathering and supersede the word. Now hear me, we can and should apply the word to current events in the moment, seriously, clearly, fervently. But a topic never dictates the passage. The passage always forms the topic. And so we're talking about anti-racism a lot in our world, and we need to, and the church needs to, and we are addressing it, and we will continue. And we pray about it in our corporate gathering, and we apply it in our corporate preaching. And then we do it throughout the life of our church and podcasts and classes and conversations. Yes, in amen, we will address it. But a topic will never dictate and interpret the word. It's why the Apostle Paul, in the final chapter of his final letter to his protege Timothy, gives this simple command, Timothy, preach the word in season and out of season. No matter what craziness is happening all around you, no matter if it costs you your life like it did for Paul, preach the word. For the word is profitable for teaching and reproof and correction and training in righteousness and are able to make you wise for salvation. This book is the sole authority in the local church. It's the written word inspired by God the Holy Spirit which spotlights the work of God the Son to the glory of God the Father. Number three, 
a confessional response. Remember what I said earlier, that the worship gathering is not just God's provision for his people. It's a response of the people to that provision. It's a two-sided covenant. And on the mountain in Exodus chapter 24, we see the elders of Israel respond twice to God's word. First in verse 3, when they say, all the words of the Lord that he has spoken, we will do. And then again in verse 7, after Moses reads from the book, Again, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do, and we will be obedient. So why did they respond twice? What is with the double reading and the double responding? There's some discussion about um, ancient covenants, if you read in uh, world history, that it was always spoken twice, that the first one was to understand the covenant between two parties, and then the second time was to confirm the covenant. Verse 7 contains the same language as verse 3, but then added the phrase, and we will be obedient. Uh, Commentators will compare this to uh, the traditional wedding ceremony today, which itself is a confirmation of a covenant, first in the eyes of God, and also in the eyes of the government. And where you have in the wedding ceremony both the declaration of intent and then the taking of the vows. First, the husband and wife declare the intent to enter into the covenant of marriage. Will you have this man? Will you have this woman? Responding with, I will. And then later, they go through the terms of the covenant in reading and taking their vows. In sickness and health, for richer or poor, till death do us part. Those are terms of a covenant. And they commit that by saying it. And so here in Exodus 24, we have the covenant set. God sets the terms. The people respond by confessing this is true and committing to follow. And and so what's going to seal this covenant? The blood of a sacrifice. The only way a holy God can make a covenant with an unholy people is through blood. Why? Why? Because this, again, is a holy, perfect God. And this is an unholy, imperfect people. And God in his holiness cannot betray himself by just overlooking sin against him. That would be unjust. We're talking a lot about in our world today about injustice. That is the ultimate injustice. To just let the guilty go free at no cost. So there will be blood spilled. But it won't be the blood of Israel. It will be through an animal sacrifice. It will be innocent blood spilled and this blood sprinkled on the altar and then um, sprinkled on the people to seal this covenant. You might be reading that and being like, man, well, it's kind of extreme, man. Like, why is that necessary? Like, you're kind of sprinkling sprinkling and throwing the blood on the people? Not only in this moment is it not unnecessary, It's vital because it shows that this is a matter of life and death. The blood represents both judgment and mercy. The blood sprinkled on the altar is God's blood in judgment. And the blood sprinkled on the elders is Israel's blood in mercy. And it's what binds God to his people. So this is the part of the worship service that should stop us in our tracks. 
This is where it's revealed to be a covenant of grace that we are renewing each week when we gather, a covenant of grace that the blood shows that while perfection was demanded in Exodus 24 through the covenant, atonement was provided. The people of Israel who just said, we'll obey this law, all of it, all the words. We'll do it, we're in. But we know that they will fail and it won't take long and they won't keep it perfectly. But the covenant will stand because God knew this and he won't break from his people because he has made an atonement for their sin that they haven't even committed yet because of the blood. Perfection was demanded, but atonement was provided. Both judgment and mercy. This is why the New Testament will describe Jesus' saving work in terms of blood. The blood shed at the cross is a symbol of both judgment and mercy. And the cross where, where perfection was demanded and atonement was provided. Where God took the judgment upon himself so he could shed mercy on those who would believe in him. Hebrews chapter 9 will directly connect this passage to the sacrifice of Christ. And you kind of go through 9, it kind of walks through all the steps, and listen to how chapter 9 ends. Verse 27, And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who eagerly wait for him. The confessional response to God's word is a commitment to God's son, Jesus Christ. And his covenant to us is confirmed in Christ, whom we commit to follow the rest of our days. And then last, number four, the sacramental meal. Every great ceremony ends with a meal. I'm going to read verses 9 through 11 again. Then Moses and Aaron and Nadab and Abihu and 70 of the elders of Israel went up, and they saw the God of Israel. There was under his feet, as it were, a pavement of sapphire stone, like the very heaven for clearness. And he did not lay his hand on the chief men of the people of Israel. They beheld God and ate and drank. Every great ceremony ends with a meal. And at its best, this meal is a marker of fellowship, of relationship. That God ate and drank with his people as a final marker of confirmation to their covenant-based, blood-bought communion with one another. And this meal is reflected upon when Jesus, on the night he was arrested, at the last meal he would share with his disciples before going to the cross, he would stand, take bread, and give it to his disciples, saying, take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup, gave thanks, and gave it to his disciples and said, drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. This is why we routinely in the church 
end our worship service with a sacramental meal. With the bread and the cup passed out, symbolizing the body and blood of Christ who took judgment upon Himself so that He could pour out mercy on us. And every time we take it, we renew the covenant with God in the presence of God's people. We share a meal. We recall what God has done. We commit to living lives God has freed us into. And this is what we do when we worship. We are called to worship. We value the centrality of the word, read it, and explain it. We respond to him and we eat and drink. And the church, as the people of God, will continue to do so until we unite together with him at the ultimate cosmic wedding reception where we will feast on the best food we've ever had. Revelation 9, 9. And the angel said to me, Write this, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And you know what? At that marriage supper, we won't be segregated. And our diversity won't be erased either. It will be celebrated. At the table, we won't say, I don't see color. We'll say, I do see color. And I celebrate it to the glory of God. Every tongue, every tribe, and every nation sitting at the table together, celebrated as a single, diverse human race, redeemed in Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we are humbled by your word. We are grateful for your word. We are grateful for the ways that you have just set a pattern for us as your people to worship. And Lord, we do in these strange times long for the day that we can gather once again and break bread once again. And we will trust that timing to you because we know how the story ends. We know what this table looks like at the marriage supper of the Lamb. And we just thank you, Lord, that you have invited us to be sons and daughters in your kingdom and brothers and sisters of men and women across this country and world of every color, of every tribe, of every nation. And we pray, Lord, that we would live accordingly to your glory. And it's your name we pray. Amen.